Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are you excited? So fucking excited. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. It's twelve twenty three on Wednesday morning. Doing the pod, yeah. I know. <laughs> this is hard for college kids. <laughs> we are committed to Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Right. My dude. It's, oh, God. <laughs> it's Wednesday, my dude. Okay, we're moving on. So, how's life? <laughs> are you doing a mystery or murder thingy? We, I, I, um... Before I answer your question, which is an excellent question, um, which I was completely expecting, uh, I, I feel like we we don't do like a long intro, and I I I think I like that. Oh, speaking of intro, my name's Chloe. My name's Mario. What's your name? Mario. You should say it in a normal voice so people Mario. can understand you. Some people also say Mario. <laughs> I don't care. I feel like it's usually old ladies who say Mario. I don't know why. Is Maybe that like an thinking, old-timey thing? Is that like how people used to say it? Maybe they're thinking Marion. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't... I that's don't, what I think of. I don't think that's it. <laughs> when I hear your name, I think of Marion. Thank you. I'm just that's, kidding. Do you, you think that's kind I'm of a, a librarian? or Marion the librarian. What's that from? Is that from the, the music, music man? man? Yeah, the music yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. But welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, the podcast in which we talk about all things mysterious. Or murderous. Or thinginess. Yeah. 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 The weird shit. Uh, <laughs> Just the weirdest. Which we find in the news at the end of the episode. Yes, Stay we tuned. also do weird shit in the news, so... 
I've got a good one. I showed it to you earlier. I've it's got good. a good one, too. <laughs> you will have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Okay. So who should go first this time? Why don't... I think I should go first. You went first last time. You always go first. I go first almost always. Go ahead and go first. Well, I just feel like... We're both doing famous ones. True. But I feel like our criterion for who goes first is usually how gruesome it is. And I feel like yours is more gruesome than mine. Maybe. No, mine's less gruesome. Really? Don't we do the more gruesome first? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we don't really have any. That's Yours is pretty gross. Mine is probably more gross. Mine's, like, tragic. I feel like I always just, like, want to go first. I always want to go first, too. Because it's better. I don't care. Okay, you you go. Okay, so I'm really excited for this. I am going to do the death of our main man, Tupac, Tupac Shakur. So, California love. I think I'm really good at singing that song. (laughs) Okay, so back to Tupac. Uh, He was a kid. He was only 25. He was only 25? He was only 25. Wow. um, When he was murdered in a drive-by shooting. So when I first started looking at his death, I thought it was only gang-related. I didn't think that there was so much to it. Okay. And I was very wrong. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of interesting theories, and there's a lot of... Obviously, insane theories. Right. But there's one specific theory, which I'll get into later, that I is probably the most surprising. Mm. Not the most... Pl- it's plausible, but not the most plausible out of all of them. Right. But I want it to be true. Okay. So it's, it's not the one that you think is true, but the one that you wish were true. Well, the one that I really, really want to be true is the one... Is the that he's still alive? That he's still alive. Of that course. he's in like Cuba, hanging out with Elvis. And, That's what I want to really want to be true. But the other one, the other more realistic one, yeah. Well, I'll get into it. So, okay. So here's the details. On September seventh, nineteen ninety six, Tupac arrived in Las Vegas to attend the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match at the MGM Grand. They were buds, uh, Tupac and Mike Tyson. Right. Uh, I've listened to the 30 for 30, or watched, rather, the 30 for 30 about that. Of Mike Tyson? Well, the there's actually a 30 for 30, like, specifically about that night. Whoa! Like, it doesn't really get into, like, the investigation or anything, like, else. But it, it just really, like, details what happened, like, in the fight that night, like, the surrounding circumstances, and then the shooting itself. Cool. Anywho. Um... So Tupac was invited by Suge Knight, who is the co-founder of West Coast Death Row Records. Um, and that's the label that Tupac is was signed to. So on that night, September 7th, 1996, they spotted Orlando Anderson, who's a member of the Los Angeles Southside gang, The Crips. Um, and according to Wikipedia, Orlando and some other members of the gang robbed a member of Death Row's entourage in a Foot Locker store. So someone told Tupac this, and Tupac goes over and punches him in the face. So a fight broke out between um, Orlando and Tupac. In it, it happened in the lobby, in the MGM Grand Lobby. There's footage. Oh, wow. There's footage. So was this actually, like, during the fight? 
or was it I think before? it was before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, like, earlier that day. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so this rivalry has been going on for years. It's the Bloods and the Crips. So, Suge Knight and Death Row Records, their association, their association, they are associated with the Bloods, um, which is the Crips' rival gang. So, after hotel security broke up the fight, they returned to their cars and made their way to the club. Oh, so this was at, this was after the 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 fight, I believe. Yeah. So after hotel hotel security broke up the fight, they returned to their cars and made their way to the after party at a club called Club Six Six Two that Suge Knight had like rented out for the night. So at eleven ten p.m., this is on their way to the club. While they were stopped at a red light at the intersection of Flamingo Road and Coval Lane in front of the Maxim Hotel, a vehicle occupied by two women pulled up on their left side. Shakur, who was standing up through the sunroof, exchanged words with the two women and invited them to go to the club. At 11.15 p.m., about five minutes later, a white four-door late-model Cadillac with an unknown number of occupants pulled up to the Saddam's right side, rolled down the window, and rapidly fired gunshots at Shakur. He was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. And one of the bullets went into his right lung. Uh, Knight was hit in the head by bullet fragments. Because he was, in the, he was um, in the car, too. So, according to Tayana Lee Mick. Kilar and Frank Johnson's 2010 bio, Tupac Shakur. They pulled Shakur out of the car and laid him on the ground. Frank, I can't breathe, said the rapper who had been shot four times. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And that was it. 18 laters, 18, 18 years later, in 2014, Chris Carroll, who is a now retired Las Vegas PD cop, he comes forward and he um, talks more about that night. Um, he was the first on the scene and he has a bit, he has a little bit of a different story. And so according to him, when there were, there were, he had a whole entourage with him that night. So there were about Tupac did Tupac did. Yeah. He had a whole entourage with him that night. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about 10 people, um, in all. So when the, when all of the doors opened right after they pulled over, he comes, he's the first to see and he says, who shot you? Um, Tupac took a breath before responding. He said, fuck you. And then he died. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Or, well, not that he died. Here's the quote. Because technically, uh, he dies six days later in the hospital. He's in a medically induced coma, yes, yes. I assume. Yeah. Uh, he was taken to the University Medical Center, put into a medically induced coma, but he never regained consciousness. And after six days on life support, he died. Um, September 13th, 1996. The retired police officer, Chris Carroll, says, this is quote, quote, and he went from struggling to speak, being non-cooperative, to an I'm at peace type of thing, just like that, end quote. That's mm-hmm. what he said about that part. So I'll talk about my sources more at the end, but some of them talk about how the police didn't get a whole lot of cooperation from the entourage from their whole gang. But it also seems like they didn't do much themselves either, the the police force, um, when it comes to investigation. So no one was arrested or put on trial for the murder. A man named Yaki Gaddafi, who's a member who was a member of his uh, entourage that night, he was he was there during the shooting, said that he could identify the shooter, but the police never followed up with him. Unfortunately, two months later, 
he was murdered. So... Gaddafi was Yes. Murdered. So he was... He ne- I mean, there was no interview at all. Sure. E.D.I. Mean, a collaborator with Tupac, and also one of his bodyguards, Frank Alexander, they were also two other witnesses who were there and who said that they claimed that they have knowledge of the appearances of the men who were in that car. Um, however, they claimed that they were never asked by Las Vegas police to view photos of possible sub- suspects, even though they were there and stuff. So it seemed like the Las Vegas police were kind of not lacking, but uh, didn't follow up correctly with um, stuff that they should have. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to go on to some theories. So, here are the main theories. Chuck Phillips, who is a former LA Times journalist, says that Orlando Anderson, who was the Crips member who they got in a fight with uh, that night, the Southside Crips gang and Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., who I'm going to talk about next time, I think, because their deaths are closely related to each other. It's kind of weird. Right. Um, There's like a, a mini series that's coming out on USA, like specifically about these two murders and yeah. how they're linked and everything. I'm excited. With uh, one of the McPoyle brothers, or the actor rather, who plays one of the McPoyle brothers from It's Always Sunny. Yep. As like the main character. So I'm kind of excited to see that too. He'll be like normal or whatever. <laughs> or just different, just not different. a milk obsessed, incestual weirdo <laughs> from Philadelphia. Okay. So, uh, Chuck Phillips, a former LA Times journalist, says that Orlando Anderson, the Southside Crips gang, and Biggie Smalls were responsible for the murder. Phillips uh, published a two-part story titled Who Killed Tupac Shakur, and that was based on a year-long investigation, and so that's where this info comes from. So, members of the Crips were involved in the shooting as retaliation for Tupac's beating of their member, Orlando Anderson. He says that Orlando Anderson was the one who pulled the trigger and that Biggie Smalls paid a million dollars and supplied the guns for this to happen. Now, what I don't understand... Sorry, sorry, sorry. So they said that Orlando was the trigger man? Yeah. Which, okay, so that, that would definitely make sense. Yeah. But what I don't understand is that how was all of this planned if this beating happened... Not long, like, the night he was killed. So, who said that it was planned? This, um, L.A. Times journalist, Chuck Phillips. Oh, okay. So, it, according to, like, theory. numerous people who, whom he spoke to. Yes. You know, who were kind yes, of Yes, based on the that. year-long investigation. Um, well, I guess, like, it, I'm just wondering exactly what he means by planning. You know, was it planning in the sense that maybe they they had obviously had beef with Shakur beforehand, mm-hmm. right? Simply because, you know, he's aligned with their rival gang. So maybe this was simply the trigger moment that they were waiting for in a larger plan to say, you know, okay, oh, now I guess that makes sense. Now let's go forward. You know, this is the retaliation this is the, the the sort of impetus that we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a much more kind of in-the-moment planning. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, fuck this guy. You know, he just, like, disrespected us, you know, made a move on us. Now we need to make a move on him so people don't think we're, you know, weak, that we're not going to respond. Yeah. So we need to, like, 
get him? Where is he right now? Where yeah, is he going? Yeah, yeah. You know, what's he doing tonight? How can we find out? Let's go find him on the strip and take him out, you know? So Biggie had a motive, though, too. Tupac and Biggie had a, a rivalry, and it was a big part of both their music and, like, their personal lives. Right, the East Coast-West Coast rap Exactly, rivalry. exactly. The East huge Coast-West Coast. Huge historical, you know, thing. It was know? a huge thing. Of and course. so there were diss tracks between both of them. And right. so there was one specifically, like I said earlier, being Tupac's hit him up where he claims that he slept with Biggie's wife. Was that true? I'm not sure. It's, it's something like... Like, that's why I slept with your bitch, you fat motherfucker, or something. something well, I was going to say, like, like, just from an objective standpoint, Tupac was much more attractive than Biggie Smalls. Well, yes. <laughs> Biggie Smalls was like, I mean, I don't want to disrespect the dead, but, you know, he was, like, round. You know, you, you could roll him down the street. Sure, Mario. Whatever you want to say about respecting tu- the dead. Tupac great, was he was great like job. Cut, you know, great job. He was like your respect. He was like dead. prison cut. <laughs> Tupac was. I don't want to respect the dead, but I guess <laughs> I, I wasn't the dead. A, a, a Freudian slip by you because I was not respecting the dead. <laughs> Sorry, Biggie. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Anywho, he's gonna come back and fucking kill you. There is also, speaking of South Park, like we were earlier, there's that episode of South Park where they say, if you say Biggie Smalls three times into the mirror, that he'll appear. (laughs) 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 And then Butters does it. He's just like making him do shit. Favorite. It's so good. Anywho, moving on. So, um, Orlando Anderson denied being involved in Tupac's murder up until his own death in May of 1998, where he was also gunned down. So there's a lot of gun violence within this murder itself. Of course, yeah. Um, So another theory puts the blame on Suge Knight. Uh, The idea is that Suge offered Tupac to prevent him from, uh, offed Tupac to prevent him from leaving Death Row Records to start his own label. But however, Shook himself claims that he may have been the real target the night that he was ki- that Tupac was killed. That he might have been the original target. Instead. Sure. According to former LAPD detective Russell Poole, Shook Knight's motive was that he he owed Tupac millions of dollars, which is also uh, corroborated by the fact that Afeni Shakur, uh, Afeni, Afeni, I'm not sure how to say that who is Tupac's mother, sued Death Row Records and sued Suge Knight for mishandling Tupac's funds and saying that they, like, copped him out of millions of dollars. So another, like, kind of sketchy thing is that Suge Knight had reason to believe that Tupac was going to leave the label because Tupac fired his, his lawyer, David Kenner, and David Kenner's the one who wrote up the original agreement between Tupac and the label. David Kenner's also the same, uh, is also uh, Suge Knight's lawyer. Or is he also Biggie's lawyer? That would I think he's Suge Knight's lawyer. I yeah, think I'm yeah. just getting it mixed up. So, and then sure enough, was, two weeks. Was, was he like the in-house lawyer, basically, yeah. for Death Row? Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just as a side note, like, if, if you don't know who Suge Knight is... He is a scary man who he's in jail is ca- now. he's in I was going to say he's in jail now he's completely capable uh I believe from what I know of his reputation of murder yeah. and any other yeah. you know thing you could think of like from from what I've heard of him he is a hard 
fucker. Like, he would fuck you up. So, we'll I, I don't know. We'll talk about Knight uh, when we talk about Biggie's death. Right, right. Because there is strong, strong indication that he was the one who did it. Sure, sure. Yeah. So It's, like, yeah. almost obvious that he's the one who did it, but there's just no police investigation on that one either. And that one happened in L.A. And oh. we all know how corrupt the LAPD is, especially sure. in the 90s. They've gotten better. They yes, they have yes. gotten better, like, in the past, like, five to ten years. But it's funny because I, I was thinking that earlier, too, when you were talking about how, like, they weren't, you know, Tupac's crew wasn't really engaging with the police. The police weren't really, you know, wanting to, you know, do a thorough investigation because it seems like everyone already knew what happened. Yeah. Like, there wasn't really the necessity for an investigation because, I mean... It's obvious, like it was this rival gang, but but and, and, still and, all anyway. of these connections and all of these people who say this and that and sure. I, I, there's more. So yeah, so he fired his lawyer, and then sure enough, two weeks later, Suge Knight invited Tupac to the boxing match hmm. in Vegas. Right. Um, according to witnesses, uh, Suge Knight took a mysterious phone call after the fight in the lobby while everybody was fleeing the scene. And he also insisted that Tupac ride in his car that night. Um, so another theory. Okay, here's a theory that I was talking about earlier that I want to believe because I think it's the most interesting and I think it's pretty fucked up. So Sean Combs, P. Diddy, right. Puff Daddy. This, that, he's yeah, back to thing. being Sean Combs now, right? I don't know and I don't care. I'm fairly <laughs> sure that he's like made it full circle. Like he's back to insisting that people now again call him. Sean Combs, but anyway, hey, I, I hey, Prince him. did it too. Okay, he's not him. he's not the only one. I always called him P Diddy. Sure, so. sure. Um, another theory is that P Diddy orchestrated the murder. He uh, is the CEO of their rival record label, East Coast Record Label, Bad Boy Records. Um, so this theory comes from former LAPD detective Greg Kading, who says that he got a confession on tape from a Crips gang member named Keith Davis. Now, Davis claims that P. Diddy paid him a million dollars to carry out the murder of Suge Knight and Tupac. Um, furthermore, Orlando, Orlando Anderson is, Dave, is um, Davis's nephew. Oh. So he cl- Davis claims that Orlando's the one who pulled the trigger, and he also says that the motive for this was that P. Diddy was scared that Suge Knight would strike first and that um, uh, they wanted to go for Suge Knight and that Tupac was only in the mix because of that song, Hit Him Up, which had to do with Biggie. Hmm. Um, so they're basically saying he was killed as a retaliation for that song. For the song, yeah. For the diss track. Yes. Um, furthermore... Which I, I say, like, an old white guy, obviously. <laughs> the diss the track. Diss track. Um, that's a rapper term. Okay. Mm, yes. <laughs> so, Just to clarify. We can, like, believe this dude, Keith Davis, because he was looking at 25 years to life if he didn't talk. Yeah. So, because first I was like, why should we, like, believe this, like, random guy? Well, isn't that a reason not to believe him? Because he, like, had an incentive to talk to reduce his sentence? Well, that's why you want to talk. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, because 
You're going to get 25 years to life if you sit here and be quiet. Right. But if you tell the police... You'll get a reduced sentence. But it's you're telling them what they want to hear, too. But I assume they would also have... That's true. But I also assume they would have some sort of corroboration for it. You know, otherwise they're not going to go along. I I would hope so. I would think so. But I feel like it maybe could cut either way. So a more unrelated theory... Okay. ...has to do with the Jewish Defense League, a pro-Israel extremist group that actually the FBI has um, identified as a terrorist group. Oh. That they're the ones who killed Tubak because apparently the FBI has files of them that contain death threats. Hmm. Anyway... The last theory is that, like I said, um, the one I everybody wants to believe, that he faked mm-hmm. his death. Of course. And that he's still alive and well today, and there's a lot of people that think that he's living in Cuba or something. So he would be, what, around 40? 1996. That's about 22 years ago. So, okay, so he'd, he'd, be so he'd be 47. So still pretty 46, young. 46, 47. Yeah. 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 Hmm. But, there, I mean, just to be clear, there is absolutely no evidence for that, right? People have, there's been sightings. Was there an autopsy report? Yeah. Was his because body... Because they know where the bullets went and stuff. Was his body displayed at the funeral? Oh, I'm not sure. Because, I mean, that would seem to be dispositive, right? I mean, if... Although, I guess you could always say, well, maybe it was a double body. Maybe it was just somebody who looked like him, you Ugh. know, or whatever. I mean, when you get into conspiracy theory land, you know, you can say whatever you want, right? But, but it, you know, it seems to me if, I guess you could, like, disinter his body and do a DNA test or something. Mm-hmm. But, obviously, no one's going to do that at this point. But you're right, it is definitely the theory that... People would rather be the case, right? Mm-hmm. That he's just, like, stole. But why Cuba in particular? Is that just a convenient location? Maybe or? it has to do... It had to do with the travel ban at the time. That it would be just a place that, like, people wouldn't... Wouldn't go. Wouldn't go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's still, you know, close to the United States. It's only, what, like, 90 miles off the coast of Florida or something? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Anywho, my sources were Wikipedia, BuzzFeed Unsolved, and Natalie Finn's article on E! News, which is funny because it was like a full article on his death that was written like three days ago. Really? Yeah, I was like, oh, that's kind of timely. Oh, it's you know, it's probably because of that series. It's the, oh, that main oh, series that's yeah. coming out on USA Today, which I believe is called Unsolved, right? Yes. Anything else? Any other reckless speculation or theories of the case uh i don't know i think it'd be i think it'd be cool if it was sean combs because he's so that's so random i saw his name and i was like oh my god and then and then he's part of the east coast record label and then there's this guy claiming that he gave him a million dollars to do it and i was like what yeah i don't know i guess people claim shit like that all the time it's a little hard to know. But it would be pretty crazy. I mean, he's still, like, a huge mogul and everything else. So it would be pretty crazy if he if he were somehow involved. So which famous case are you doing? Okay. So 
I'm going to do the case of the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. Ooh. Yeah, which is also, like, pretty famous. Ooh, if y'all for, don't know it, for reasons. Yeah. It's crazy. There's a video that we'll get into that you will need to go and watch. Okay, so Elisa Lam, also known as Lam Ho Yi, was a student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and she was 21 when she died. Her parents had emigrated from Hong Kong to Vancouver, British Columbia, which we we talked about was that last time with the Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. British like, Columbia? Yeah, it's like that same area. So Elisa Lam was a student, but... So it is Elisa, not Eliza. It's definitely Elisa. Okay, I always thought it was Eliza. Eliza Lam. Yeah, well, as part of this, I listened back to the MFM episode that includes this, and... I think you might be getting that from them because Georgia kept saying Eliza. Oh. <laughs> but it's actually Elisa. Um, so Elisa Lamb, like I said, she was a student, but she wasn't actually enrolled at this point, and this happened in 2013 because she had been having some difficulties dealing with her mental health issues. So she was kind of taking a little bit of a break from school at this point. So she traveled alone to California, kind of, you know, just taking a a trip to clear her head, I guess, and, you know, just kind of have some fun and and try to take her mind away from the difficulties that she'd be having. That's, That's kind of my assumption. And she arrived in Los Angeles on an Amtrak train on January 26th. She was uh, staying at the Cecil Hotel, which I'll talk about a little bit at the end about the Cecil Hotel and its, or Cecil, it's not really clear whether it's Cecil or Cecil, and it's um, rather ignominious history. But suffice it to say, it's in a very bad part of L.A. So it's basically in Skid Row, which is, um, you know, cartoonishly poor and destitute, and also the scene of many grisly murders, including by uh, Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterweger, who we'll talk about at the end in, in connection with the Cecil Hotel's history. But Elisa Lam wasn't probably really aware of that, because at the time that this happened, the Cecil Hotel was under new management. They are now called the Stay on Main, mm-hmm. and they've really tried to get away from that history, including by doing a lot of renovations and basically trying to turn themselves into, like, a trendy hostel, specifically, like, for traveling students, like Elisa Lam. Mm-hmm. So presumably Elisa would have looked up, you know, trendy, cheap hostels in L.A., and the stay on Main would have come up. So... When she got there, she was staying in the hostel part of it with some roommates, but her roommates had told a hotel manager whose name was Amy Price that Elisa was exhibiting some weird behavior, some odd behavior, in the the day or so before her disappearance. Um, But it's not totally clear, like, exactly what she was doing. Um, She was... 
diagnosed with bipolar disorder, so presumably she was going through some sort of manic episode. That that's what we can kind of assume, and and people think that may have been part of what precipitated her death. But she also was very diligent in contacting her parents, like every single day when she was on this solo travel. So that's how we kind of know that January 31st was the day that she went missing. Because she didn't call her parents. She she did not contact her parents on that day. That's also the last day that she was seen alive. You know, per anyone that they could find. Yeah. Specifically, uh, a local bookstore owner named Katie Orphan who had spoken with Lamb on January 31st while Lamb was buying some gifts for her family. And in that conversation, Lamb, you know, talked about how she was going to be going home, that she was going to be going on to San Jose, like, the next day or whatever, that she didn't want to get any books that were too heavy because she didn't want to have to deal with that on her travels. So it seems like Lamb's state of mind was not depressed or suicidal it seemed pretty clear and like at least you know in this conversation that she had with miss orphan that she was kind of looking ahead to the rest of her travels it didn't seem like there was anything particularly like weird or you know odd about her behavior to to katie orphan so anyway for whatever that's worth lamb was reported missing At that point, her parents called the police, and they actually flew down to Los Angeles to to try to help find her. And uh, she was, you know, missing for several days. The police actually searched the hotel, including the roof. And we'll get into that in a minute here, but she was eventually found on the roof. But they didn't search every room in the hotel, because at that point... And really afterwards, too, they didn't really have a probable cause that a crime had been committed. Yeah. So they said, you know, they they looked throughout the hotel. They brought in dogs that, you know, had her scent. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do an exhaustive search of the hotel. So, you know, that, that kind of, I think, from the outset, limited their ability to really know what happened. Because they just didn't do as thorough kind of as a search as as they could have, possibly. So several days go by, a couple of weeks go by, three weeks go by. The guests are complaining about the water pressure, about the water in the hotel changing color, becoming like green and black. And that the taste was really bad. Which, you know that thing where you like, <laughs> you get like a acidic taste in the back of your mouth because you feel like you're about to throw up? Yeah. Like, when I say that people said the taste was bad, I get that taste in the back of my Ugh. mouth because it is just like, oh my god, that is so incredibly gross that people literally drank the water in which... Elisa Lamb's body had been decomposing. So she was found eventually by a maintenance worker by uh, named rather Santiago Lopez on February nineteenth, twenty thirteen. 
So she goes missing on January 31st. She's found on February 19th. In the water tank. In a water tank on the roof of the Cecil Hotel. You exactly. never mentioned that. I just well, think that's funny. <laughs> I was getting to that. This is when I got to that. Sorry. I'm telling the story. Let me do it in my own time. <laughs> So her body was found by, like I said, a maintenance worker, Santiago Lopez, on February 19th in a water tank on the roof. When they uh, went up to the roof um, to to search, you know, after he found it, the hatch to the water tank was apparently open. And her body was naked and face-up, her clothes... And her room key were floating next to her in the tank. But her phone was never recovered. It wasn't in the tank. It wasn't in her room. They really have no idea where it ended up being. They presume that it was stolen around that same time. But that's like one of those kind of weird little details in this story that kind of make you wonder, you know, what exactly was going on. So, eventually, she was ruled to have died by accidental drowning by the coroner's office. But it seems like the coroner's office was not totally convinced that it was accidental because on the, like, the death record itself, you can see that if initially it was uh, marked accidental, but later on that was actually, like, scratched out. And initialed, and then it was marked unknown after that. Whoa. So it seems like the coroner or whoever was investigating this wasn't entirely sure. But there was no evidence of trauma. So, in other words, there was no, like, uh, bruising or ligature marks that were obvious or anything like that. Excuse me. There was a rape kit done, but apparently it was never processed. So we don't really know if there was sexual trauma or not. I hear that happens a lot. Yes. A a huge percentage. The majority of rape kits, uh, I believe, at least in some municipalities, are not tested. Primarily for financial reasons. Financial reasons? Yeah. Oh, my God. Which, yeah, is pretty dastardly, you know. But, yeah, that's that's kind of its own thing. But, um, so we, we, we don't really know, you know, if she may have been sexually assaulted or not. The investigation was also hindered, obviously, by the fact that her body had been decomposing in water for several weeks. So the ability to really know what happened to her, I feel, was pretty irreparably damaged just by the, which, if there were foul play involved, may have been the whole point, right? Yes. Putting a body in water is a pretty good way of destroying evidence. So to get back and unpack a little bit this weird security camera footage, um, this is... Basically, the reason why this case became so famous at the time, Uh when she had been missing, I believe for about a week, the police released security camera footage of the last time that Elisa Lam is seen alive, 
not by a person, but by the security camera in an elevator on the 14th floor of the what's now known as the Stay on Main. And it is bizarre and disturbing. It also may have been altered, presumably by the police, which is also a weird thing. Uh, specifically sped up, and about a minute of it has been cut out, it seems. What could be in there? Another person? Maybe another person or nothing. It's really not clear. But basically, in the footage, we see Elisa Lamb getting into the elevator, kind of crouching down and methodically pressing, like, the middle buttons uh, for for different floors, and then also the the like hold button to keep the doors open, and people say that this is like a technique when you're being like stalked or followed that you're supposed to do, I guess, so that someone doesn't know on what floor you are if you press like several floors on an elevator, and then you just hold the door open, so you have the ability to like run away. So Whoa. people theorize that may have been why she was doing it. It also, it's really just unclear when you're watching it if she's, like, is she scared? Is she hiding? Is she playing hide-and-seek with a kid? Is she flirting with someone? Like, something they talk about in the MFM episode is apparently people have looked at it who are experts in body language, and they say that Elisa Lamb exhibits some classical flirting body language in the footage. So her face is kind of obscured. It, it's, it's it's kind of playful? pixelated. It seems like it, it – and it really depends, I think, on your mindset going into it. If you think she was murdered or being hounded by a ghost or something, you're going to think it's disturbing. If you don't think that, you're going to think it's kind of playful. But, I mean, I watched it today again. I've watched it before. And to me, it seems more playful than fearful. Because she's, you know, when you watch it, she she's, like, looking out into the hallway, presumably to see, like, oh, is, some, is that person there or whatever. And then she goes back into the elevator and... She kind of goes up against the wall, but her and the and the body language experts talk about about this too. Her whole kind of demeanor is pretty relaxed, actually. Like she doesn't look super tense or, you know, like agitated. I mean, she just looks like she's not really that concerned about what's going on when she's kind of moving in and out of the elevator through the first couple of minutes of this video. So to me, it's not a real clear indication of foul play as, as some people I think would like to use that video to, to kind of prove that theory. So it's, it's just kind of unclear. And at one point she does leave the elevator and makes a series of kind of bizarre gestures with her hands and this is really by far the most kind of bizarre and disturbing part of the video. And it's 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 sort of like she's making these kind of like circles and kind of just weird gestures with her hands. And it's it's just really not clear why she's doing this or what exactly is going on. 
but it looks like she's doing it kind of directed to that same person or whatever in the hallway. Eventually, Elisa Lam disappears from the frame and doesn't reappear for the last minute, minute and a half of the video. The elevator door does close and then open again a couple of more times, but no one else appears in the frame. So it's unclear, is it changing floors and opening and closing? Is it staying on the same floor and opening and closing? It really, you can't really tell. But it just kind of freaked me out because presumably someone's like pressing Pressing the the button to go, but no one's going in. So what's going on? I really don't know. So again, I would encourage you to go and watch that video because it it, it is just really crazy. If you just look up, you know, Elisa Lam hotel video, whatever, it'll come right up. So eventually when her body's found and they're doing the investigation, they try to figure out, you know, how did she actually get up there? Um, the hotel manager claimed that the roof was restricted and that the door up to it was locked and alarmed, but that may not actually be the case. So there was a intrepid Chinese YouTube user. Ah, oh, I heard about that. Yes, which is also a, a video you should look up. It is in Chinese, but there's a translation in the comments. Of, of what the, the gentleman is saying. But basically, he went to the Cecil Hotel to kind of look into this himself. And he actually, you can see him in the video walking wow. up the stairs. And the door to the roof is actually propped open. That's so weird. not only is it not locked and alarmed, it's it's literally just open. And I'm not, I think he, his video is from like 2015, maybe sometime around there. So, you know, this notion that somehow there must have been something untoward or supernatural going on for her to reach the roof doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that probably she could have gotten up to the roof on her own, up the stairs, you know, without anyone having to take her up there. Because some people theorized, well, a hotel employee must have been involved because up in order to get up to the roof, you would have had to have a key, you know, access of some sort. And therefore, maybe that missing minute in the video was because of a hotel employee who erased it because they were involved somehow. And that's all very interesting, but it's based... You don't think it's plausible? Well, no, I think it's plausible. I just think it's not necessarily the most plausible explanation. And it's not necessary to explain the facts because... Again, it's based on this kind of flawed premise that one would have to have a hotel employee involved in order to get up to the to the roof itself. Did they find any drugs in her body? Yeah, that's a really good question. They did not find any recreational drugs in her body. They found a very small concentration of alcohol, and reportedly she had gone to a bar uh, earlier that maybe the day before, I think, uh-huh. or maybe that same day. And she was also prescribed four prescription medications Uh for her bipolar disorder. Uh Two of them, I think, were mood stabilizers, and and two of them were antidepressants, I think. Did they find those? They found an inconclusive... 
conclusive result. Partly because she had kind of, you know, desanguinated while decomposing. Yeah. And her body had been so, you know, kind of contaminated by the water that it wasn't really possible to get. Because what if she was just off her meds? Well, that's one of the theories, right? That she was off her meds. And therefore, which is completely possible when you have bipolar disorder, if you're taking medications and you you get off of them, to have a kind of psychotic break or manic episode in which one can hallucinate and um, exhibit extraordinary strength, but also ill judgment. So that's probably the most logical explanation that... And the one to which the coroner's office basically came, that she, as a result, somehow of her bipolar disorder, made the decision to get into this water tank and unfortunately drowned. But the, the, and, and the video, again, it, it could support that theory because maybe she was hallucinating and saw, you know, my personal kind of pet theory is that she was hallucinating saw what she thought was, like, a child and was, like, playing with the child while that video was kind of going on. And that that's what I think happened in that. But who knows, you know. So I think what, what's also kind of important to remember and a, something that uh, people, including that Chinese activist, or not activist, but that Chinese... Um, tourist who made the video and a an activist who works with the many low income people who work who live at the Cecil Hotel which is um designated as a um as a residential hotel by the city made the the point which i think is a good one that you know we have to kind of recognize Elisa Lamb's humanity in all of this, that it's a very interesting story, that it, it's become very sensationalized, but that, you know, her kind of personhood is important in this as well, and that, that she, like, suffered. Whatever happened, yeah. right? She died, she suffered. Yeah. She she deserved better than she got, I that think, from the investigation and and from, you know, kind of the people who, who like to kind of sensationalize around her her death. And um, one way in which people have kind of done that is by connecting with her Tumblr page and her her earlier Blogspot blog. And one weird thing is that her Tumblr page continued to be updated in the months after her death. And it's really kind of unclear how this was happening or why. People theorize maybe her stolen phone gave someone access to her account. And they they were updating it. Other people think that it may just have been the queue feature in Tumblr yeah, that allowed people say, to right. So that's probably what happened. But um, in that Tumblr page, she talked mainly about like fashion. She was really into clothes and fashion uh-huh. and design, and her experience, you know, living with her mental health issues and she was like very open about that and you know specifically about kind of a really difficult time she had had in 2012 and then the fact that she had to 
basically drop out of school because of her depression and having to deal with mental health issues in 2013. And she was, like, worried that she wouldn't be able to get into grad school because she had had to drop all these classes, you know. So it's tough, you know. And, again, I feel like in in all these stories, right, we try to find how we can empathize with victims and see the humanity in people, right? So I just think that's, that's kind of an important kind of discussion to have around, you know, this kind of very interesting, intriguing story. But to get back to the the intrigue, um, some of the theories as to what, you know, happened in this situation, um, people theorize that it something may have happened in regards to her possibly having tuberculosis, which there was an outbreak of um, at the same time that she was in the city, or that she may have taken a sleeping drug that may have caused her to hallucinate or something. But there's no evidence of that in the autopsy. I mean, like I said, the autopsy was a little bit inconclusive because of the circumstances, but there was just, she wasn't found to have had tuberculosis or to have taken any sleeping drugs. So the, those are kind of illegitimate, I think. Lamb, like I said, was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the coroner's office found that this was a likely contributing factor. And like we said before, it's a little bit unclear if she had been taking all of her medications in the days leading up to her disappearance and death. However, there were some traces of her prescriptions found in her body. Her family stated that, excuse me, while she had been dealing with mental health issues, that she had had no previous suicidal ideation or suicide attempts, according to them. Yeah, but that kind of thing happens suddenly. True, and... It's not something... Well, I I guess it is something that you can kind of look back and be like, oh, I guess it makes sense that 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 he killed himself, but when you're looking at something like this, I just feel like that claim Mm -hmm. means very little. Sure. Yes. Especially since she was in California on her own. Right. We should take it with a grain of salt, for sure. For sure. And those sorts of things also are not always the kinds of things that one always speaks about with one's family. Exactly. Exactly. Or even exactly. closest friends or, or partner. Yeah. You know, like, they can be incredibly um, personal, difficult things to deal with. And, um, you know, just as a side note, you know, the, the suicide prevention hotline is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. That's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. If you or anyone else that you know is dealing with issues, needs help. You know, call them, find help. Um, Because, like we said, like we were just talking about, it's not always obvious. Exactly. And not everyone deals with these things in the same way. So help is out there. It can be a very isolating, lonely thing. Totally. And you feel like you can't talk to anybody or that nobody would care or that nobody would really want to listen. Right. And sometimes you don't even want to talk to anybody. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And that's the most dangerous. Especially your family or your friends or, like, yeah, yeah, like people who you 
fear may, you know, somehow, you know, think less of you or something. I mean, even if it's irrational, you know, those kinds of things can, can hinder seeking help. And who knows, you know, that's, again, just one of these kind of mysteries that's surrounding this. There's also the possibility that Lamb was murdered, you know, that there was foul play involved. While there's no evidence of trauma that the coroner's office could find on the body, it is possible that someone may have lured her there or coerced her to get into the tank, I think. And it would basically have been impossible for her to get out of the tank herself. Really? Yes. The, the, There's no safety thing? It No. There nothing that I heard of. And in fact, when they recovered her body from within the tank, they actually had to cut it open, literally cut it open because the tank, the tank itself, they had to drain. Well, they had to drain the whole system, flush it and sanitize it. Yeah. But they had to drain the tank and cut it open to get her body out. Wow. So this would not have been an easy thing either for her to get into or for her to get out of. The tank itself, and, you know, there, there's a lot of different kinds of these. Specifically, this kind of tank was eight feet tall, was made of metal and concrete, and there was no obvious way to get up there, even. The workers who eventually found her body had to use a ladder to get up to the tank. And that Chinese um, YouTube user shows us also that you can get up to a landing that's above the tank, but there, there's no obvious way to get to it. I mean, you would have to kind of, like, jump down to it. That's weird. Which would have been pretty difficult. Now, again, if one's going through a manic episode, you know, one may have an adrenaline rush in which one can do maybe things that seem impossible, but... You know, the more kind of supernatural theories as to how this happened, I think to some extent are bolstered by this fact that it would have been so difficult to get into that tank. That changes everything. I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it's a very interesting nugget. It's, it's a small piece of the puzzle, but it may be a key piece of the puzzle. That's why this case is so weird, because there's a lot of small but... Wow, wait a minute, what type exactly. of things? To me, that fact points to foul play. Me too, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, because it just would have been so difficult for her to do this on her own. And and again, another small but key fact, and, and, and this was according to the hotel employee who found her, uh, Santiago Lopez, I think his name was, that the hatch was open when she was huh. found. If it had been closed when she was found, I would say that foul play would be certain. Yeah. Because I don't think there's any way that she could have closed the hatch. Oh, for sure. On her own. So the fact that it was still open... Now, again, I, I saw in some other places that it was closed when she was found. But I think that may have just been misreporting because I, what, what I read was that Mr. Lopez in like 
his official statement said that said it was that open. It was so open, I yeah. think that that was the case. Another theory, although again, I think this is kind of discredited, was that Lamb was on some kind of drug and that the, that caused her to basically do this. Some people argue that although no recreational drugs were found in the toxicology report, that this may have been simply because of the decomposition and the inability to really do a proper toxicology test, or that she took something that there just wasn't a test for. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, they wouldn't have found it either way. So, you know, I suppose that's possible. But my strong intuition, I suppose, would be that she was having some kind of manic bipolar episode that someone found her and basically used that as an excuse to perpetrate the perfect murder, which was to convince her to get into that tank somehow Watch her die and then walk away. That is sickening. And never be found. There's no evidence for that, so I can't say that that happened. But. But to me, that's the most plausible explanation. Wowee. And, and, I mean, I think that's a pretty crazy, it's a pretty crazy story just in general, right? Oh, for sure. And it, it certainly captured the attention of the nation at the time. It, it was an extremely famous case um, while it was happening, even before she was found. But since, it's also been the inspiration for a number of different uh, fictionalized stories. People also say that it basically mimics, and I never saw this movie, but the movie Dark Water with Jennifer Connelly. I never saw it either. Yeah, I never saw it, but people say, which came out before this happened, people say that it, it kind of mirrors that what happens in that movie, huh. which is very kind of weird and bleh. But anyway, <laughs> um, the Elisa Lamb story itself, though, has been the inspiration for, for example, American Horror Story, a short movie by a man named Dustin or Destin Pfaff, um, the ABC show Castle, as well as, of course, How to Get Away with Murder. Yep, yep. The whole kind of initial storyline. What's her face was found in the sorority house tank. Right, right, right. In in basically the same circumstance. Yeah. And it was also the inspiration for a movie made in Hong Kong, uh, which, again, is where Elisa Lam's family comes from, called Hungry Ghost Ritual. Whoa. And then there's a, a movie that's... Actually, I think there are a couple of projects that are kind of in spec right now uh, or in pre-production that are based on her story as well. So just as as kind of an epilogue here to the story, let's talk a little bit about the... Cecil Hotel itself. All right. What happened besides Ramirez? Right. So the Cecil Hotel is a very famous murder true crime spot in Skid Row. As you were just saying, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, one of the most famous serial killers in history, stayed there in the 80s uh, during the height. During his 
spree, right? During the height of his spree. God. I think, if I remember correctly, he killed five or six sex workers while he was staying at the Cecil Hotel. In that area. Wow. Uh, Another serial killer named uh, Jack Unterweger, Uh who's actually Austrian. Uh And, And if I remember his story correctly, he actually killed people in Austria went to L.A., specifically apparently stayed yes, in the Cecil Hotel. I think you're right. And killed sex workers there as kind of an homage, as sick and disturbing as that is, to Richard Ramirez. Gross. And, and that was in 1991. The Wiki- There's also a separate Wikipedia page that is just for deaths and violence that have happened at the Cecil Hotel. Wow. And that uh, list includes 16 instances between 1931 and 2015. Wow. So including after the time that it's been known as the State on Main. The hotel, like we talked about before, has tried to shed its macabre reputation (laughs) since it's changed uh, both its name and also its ownership. Henry Zabrowski of last podcast on the left. Yep. And we we actually listened to this pretty recently. He he got kicked out (laughs) of the hotel as he was doing a kind of adventure to true crime spots in LA. But he described it as being sort of like run down and then having a coat of paint put over it. Yeah. (laughs) But it's still being like very weird and 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 kind of having a, a a very murdery vibe still for sure so um yeah that's elisa lamb and the very wow. mysterious circumstances of of her death yeah but, i didn't know the the details of that one yeah like i said you know there's a lot of details and and just that video is kind of a whole story mystery unto itself. So, let's move on. Okay. To weird, weird shit, shit in, in the, the news. news. So, I'm going to talk about mine. It's pretty quick. So, this is from NBC News. And, uh, so, there was a main dairy company. And, uh, because of their, like, contract and, like, overpaying workers and the wording of it, because there wasn't an Oxford comma, it basically cost them five million dollars. So here's how that works. So the suit was brought against the Oakhurst Dairy by the company's drivers, and this was back in 2014. Um, they sought ten million dollars in dispute over overtime payment. So... Basically, in the law, so the the Oakhurst Dairy Company has an an overtime uh, law. No, 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 sorry. The state of Maine has an overtime law. The state of Maine and this law says it doesn't apply to, quote, the canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, marketing, storing, packing for shipment or distribution of agricultural produce, blah, 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 blah. So, basically, the overtime, the paying of overtime law doesn't apply to these certain things. So, the disagreement stemmed from the lack of a comma from the word shipment. So, basically, it would say 
canning process and packing for the shipment comma or distribution of but it says packing for shipment or distribution of so it kind of changes the meaning there right um so the judge re- the judge reasoned that the law's punctuation made it unclear if packing for shipping or distribution is one activity or if packing for shipping is separate from distribution. So the five drivers who led the lawsuit will receive $50,000 each from the settlement fund. Just for, for that little comma, that right. little somebody looked at that and noticed it and was like, "Wait a minute." What you got for me, friend? So, let me bring mine up here. Okay, so mine's from People Magazine, and the title is Woman Born with Unique Birthmark Learns She's Her Own Twin. We Fused Together in the Womb. And so story by Char Adams. Okay, so the story is about a woman named Taylor Mule who learned that she had a twin in the womb and that what she thought was a weird, and had been told by doctors, was a weird birthmark, which was basically like the whole like side of her stomach is red, was actually her unborn twin who had been absorbed into her body. Didn't Meg from Family Guy also do that? Yes, there was there yeah, there was a joke <laughs> like that. Um so this is apparently a disorder called chimerism in which a person has two sets of DNA. So what? Literally her body, Mule's body has DNA that was her fraternal twin. That's weird. So her body's basically like has two immune systems and like two circulatory systems and it's constantly fighting against itself. Is she like okay? Not really. Oh, oh my like God. I mean she hasn't died from it, but she has, like, a lot of health. It's basically, like, an autoimmune disease because her her body's, like, her immune system is, like, fighting against what it perceives as foreign DNA, which is this twin that was in, absorbed into her body before birth. Oh, that's so, so weird. Yeah, it's created a lot of health issues for her, and that's been a struggle but what she says is that, you know, she dealt, she found out of this about seven years ago, but she was like really, I mean, obviously like weirded out by it and like uncomfortable with other people knowing. Yeah. Cause she felt like, I guess she would be like stigmatized, which is like so sad. But in the past like year, she's kind of like come out you know, with the story and cause I guess she's like a singer uh-huh. as well. Um, so she felt like it would have like hurt her career basically. Yeah. But now I guess she feels like comfortable to talk about it. And she says that, you know, now that she's like told her story and everything that she feels a lot better about it and That's has, good. has kind of like come to terms to some extent That's good. with what happened. But you know, she said like, it's really sad because she actually felt like she always wanted 
a twin. Oh. And, like, she said that she would dress up like her friends and, like, tr- pretend that she was, like, twins. So she, it was, it, she, I don't know, it's so weird because, like, apparently she had this, like, kind of, I don't know, subliminal, subliminal sense that she should have been a twin. Yeah. Which is just so, like, strange to me. And, and, but it's true. But she said that her mom was also, like, pretty sad because, like, she could have had two kids, but she only had the one kid. So kind of a sad story, but, you know, also kind of redeeming. But very interesting, yeah. So, and I'd never heard of that as, like, a real thing. It's like, a real thing, yeah. Yeah, chimerism. So, very weird. Very, very weird. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's our, that's, that's our story. That's and we're, our show, kids! That's, that's our mystery, and we're sticking to it. No. <laughs> that's stupid. That's our mystery murdery thingy. Woo! We're still struggling to find a sign-off. <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to happen. Good job by you. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We We should have said that at the beginning. God damn it. We got to remember that. I think it makes sense to say it at the end. Okay. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Like I haven't listened yet. It's beginning. That's true. Well, they could walk away with their gratitude. Maybe they've listened to a previous episode. That's true. But we really do appreciate it. I mean, yeah. we we had been talking about doing this literally for over a year. Yeah. Before we, we actually got down to actually starting it. Yeah. And, I mean, we're still recording this on my iPhone in your basement. Like, but we're doing it. Like, this is our ninth episode. Go team. And we, I just want to, like, shout out the people who are listening to us in, like, other countries because that's so like cool and funny to me <laughs> there's like people in like switzerland or that's something and like australia what if soundcloud is just messing with you and japan i don't know maybe it's just people who are using a vpn and pretending i don't know but <laughs> i, I want to think that there's some like people in other countries listening to us because that's so cool. <laughs> that cool i love that <laughs> you're right so thank you to you and all the other people, too. That's how the internet works. You can play Mortal Kombat with your friend in Vietnam. What's that from? From Cable Guy. Oh, God. <laughs> one of the best Jim Carrey movies. Not one of the worst, as most people think. It's time to stop. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> probably time to stop. Okay, bye. Uh, bye. <laughs>
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.